Hi everyone, it's Jenny here with Lorraine. How are you doing? Hi, I'm fine. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Enjoying the fact it's a bit cooler? Definitely, I can't stand the heat. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm missing it a bit. It's lovely having a bit of good weather, but it's also nice to be a bit cooler. Um, so this week we are chatting to our very own Katie. Um, which is fab. So everyone loves hearing what she's got to say. She's got so many um, good tips and things um, which everyone will uh, no doubt find useful. So that should be really good. Um, But in other news, this is the week. This is the week of the new website. This is the week we've been waiting for with everything, which is all very exciting, isn't it? I'm so excited. (laughs) I know. And this is the week we go to the autism show. Yeah, everything's coming at once. I was going to say that. We don't do things by halves. <laughs> it always halves. does, it's though, doesn't it? We're probably, ex- we're probably doing order as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, it's um, going to be a busy and fun week. Um, so we're not going to tell you too much because there are posts coming this week and videos and info coming, which will share with you all what's changed and what's new. Um, but one thing I do want to say, for the existing VICs, you don't need to worry. Everything stays exactly as is. You're just getting lots of lovely extra bits. Yeah, it's just going to get better. Yes. So look out on the group and the page and everything this week as you'll um, get drip fed lots of news about what's what's happening. And um, so I think we'll just listen to Katie. Catch up yep. after. Okay. Bye. <laughs> We love Annette, we love a chat, we love to help and that's a fact, so we have made it our mission to find stuff out. From diagnosis and education, slimming out of your frustration, chat to folks who've been there too, collect it together and share it with you. If you know someone we should speak to, send them our way and that's what we'll do, we like to have our sensory natters. You know what? Hi everyone, it's Jenny back again and I'm with Katie today. Hi! Hi, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you, Jenny? Yeah, really good, thank you. Now, lots of you will recognise Katie because she's got her YouTube channel, etc., called Invisible Eye. Mm-hmm. And she's done a fair few videos for ourselves as well, which are always <laughs> really... Um, Oh, what do I want to say? They're energetic. I love them. They're just full of energy. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so... Why Invisible Eye? Why did you call yourself that? It took a while to come up with the name and eventually just sort of came to me quite spontaneously because initially I was thinking about doing Invisible Illness yeah. because I have quite a few sort of invisible disabilities and I wanted to kind of centre it around that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I thought about being myself. So I sort of stands for an illness, but it also stands for myself. I am invisible or aspects of my life are invisible and uh, it's a channel to make them visible. So it kind of has sort of two meanings. Um, A lot of people have said that I should call it Invisible Us because Mm. I sort of have built up a community, but um, it's really just about making aspects of myself visible yeah that makes sense i love it thank you um okay so let's start with your journey then when when did you oh that's a long one how long have we got (laughs) well uh well i was diagnosed when i was 18 i'm 21 now so it was a couple of years ago um pretty much sort of 
typical female kind of route, really. I think a lot of um, females on the spectrum will probably relate to the experience of, um, I started experiencing a lot of mental health issues quite early on. And I was sort of thrown around mental health services quite a lot and getting support for my anxiety and my depression. And then I started to get OCD. Um, and I was sort of really struggling towards the end of my education in college and I needed a lot of support. And then uh, lots of people who follow my channel will know that I also had a diagnosis of Tourette's syndrome because I started experiencing really awful involuntary movements and sort of vocal tics, um, which I think is sort of was tied into stimming as well, which we just didn't really recognise at the time. And then about two and a half to three years after being in quite intense um, mental health care, I finally actually received a diagnosis of potentially being on the spectrum. And then that was explored further. And then finally, at age 18, it all was officially diagnosed. And here I am now. And did that did that make a difference to getting that diagnosis? Definitely. In what I, way? I think it was just more relief. Um, I did have a period of time just after diagnosis where it was really difficult to deal with. I think it was just sort of like um, in denial a little bit. Yeah. Sure, everybody goes through that sort of shock phase. But initially, when I first came out of the consultation, when we were sort of when autism and Asperger's syndrome first came up, I was just instantly like yeah, that makes total sense. And so did my parents. So it was just a complete feeling of actually relief yeah. and knowing that I can actually access support now and know what this all was and it all has a name. And um, yeah. it was just that overwhelming, oh gosh, yeah, I can I can kind of live with this. And yes, I can, I can make the most out of this and I can get support and actually carry on with life now. So yeah. it was just a huge relief. So at primary school, did, did you, were you classic female autism in that no one would know or no. yeah so, okay so but can you remember how you felt I always I always in primary school felt very isolated although I had a lot of friends and I had quite a good primary school experience it was probably one of like the best sort of years of my life really if I look back on it because I was surrounded by lots of people and I think at that age no one judges you um you know kids are kids and as long as you are willing to play everyone kind of gets on really. And I had the best sort of experience with friendship that I could possibly have. Um, but I was very much, uh, I stuck with every rule. I was teacher's pet, didn't want to step one foot out of line. And if ever I did get in trouble or I was with someone who got in trouble or I was mixed in with the wrong crowd at some points, I would just, anxiety would hit me and I would really freak out. And I think that was really the only thing that people would pick up on. I was quite mature for my age and I excelled at school quite a lot. And that was picked up on. Academically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I was really keen at learning. I just wanted to keep going and going and going. And I, I always felt like school, we were there to learn. And some obviously just think we're there to play. And I never got on with that. I was like, no, we're here to learn. Mm -hmm. And... It's actually quite funny, really, because now that I've di I've been diagnosed and I can look back on my experience, I actually had someone in my school, in my year group, who had autism, but I didn't know okay. at the time. And he was male, so 
looking back at the, uh, the comparison between like how I was experiencing primary school and how he experienced primary school was really different. But I always felt like I related to him in some level and we were quite okay. good friends. Um, but he was very isolated and really quite openly and sort of physically autistic. You could yes. see that. And um, I look back on it now and I think he didn't look any different to me and nobody really knew at that point. And I think it's really funny now looking back, I was like, well, I had the I have the same thing that you had. Yeah. I think maybe that's why we got on so well, despite the fact that we had quite different symptoms and we were sort of on different ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And I always find that really interesting because at yeah. the time I just never realised. No. Okay. So you said that you know sometimes if there were rule breaking and things like that, you you had a bit of anxiety around it. Was that yeah. displayed in school or did you save it and bottle it up until you got home? How did what did that look I like? I displayed it in school. I never I've never really experienced that whole holding it back and then getting home. I was always tend to be one that I show my emotions then and there. Like right. I really do wear my heart on my sleeve. So if something's not right, everybody in the room knows it. I can't really hide it that well. Okay. Um, so I, I never really experienced the sort of very common thing with autism of being really, really great in school and then coming home and it all being in at the home or being really, really bad in school and then coming home and being great. Yeah. Um, I, I was sort of, whichever environment I was in, I just kind of reacted. Okay. In the moment. Yeah. So I did display certain symptoms in both areas of my life, really. So at the time in primary school, no one would be any the wiser. You were none the wiser. But looking back on it, you can see a couple of things. Definitely. So then in secondary school, did that start to change? Secondary school was... I really quite tough for me. At the time, I really did thrive and I did enjoy it. But looking back on it now, I was like, wow, I did actually struggle quite a lot. Coming from primary school and then that that transition from primary into high school is so difficult for everyone, regardless of whether you're on the spectrum or not. And I went from being really, really confident in primary school and being sort of surrounded by people who I liked and who I got on with um, to then being pretty much completely socially isolated, having no one. I lost all my confidence and I would come home like every night and just cry to my mum because I was like, I felt so different and I felt like nobody understood me. I felt like I was really stupid or that I wasn't keeping up in class as much. Mm -hmm. And I went from being really, really academically quite confident to losing my social confidence, my academic confidence, Mm -hmm. everything. And I had to almost learn who I was again and that took was it something yeah I bet was it something that happened that caused you to lose all of that or was it just the process of that transition did the friends that you had in primary school not stick with you at secondary school no I went to a different um secondary school compared to most of my friends in primary and the secondary school that I went to was actually uh, female only I went to an all girls so I went from being mixed with boys and kind of everybody getting mixed in and getting along to being quite um getting into a quite strict um high school which did work for me in some respects with that whole kind of keeping the rules and following them like to the T but it was a very different environment in terms of requirements and what was expected of you and the pressure and then because of that I think it just all sort of just crumbled and I just became almost like the shell of myself and I didn't really know how to cope with it. I did eventually learn 
what worked and I eventually found a group of friends but I definitely had that experience in high school of just hopping around the groups of friends so I didn't really have a set group of friends until my last year of high school and then it was sort of like I just kept going round and round different groups, mixing with the wrong crowds eventually and um, then having to kind of isolate myself and actually be on my own for a bit and then find friends. So although I constantly did have a good stream of people around me, none of my friend my, my friendships actually stuck. I um I moved around friendship groups quite a lot, a lot. And with girls, we're all very kind of cliquey and yeah. we stick with the same crowds. So it was, yeah. it was really difficult from that point of view. And so in secondary school, we started to to see some of the behaviours displaying in terms of anxiety and depression and all the rest of it. So Yes. And your parents would have picked up on that as well. Yeah, it was it was more the mental health side that really started to go downhill when I was sort of end of high school going into college. Um, I started just having daily panic attacks um you know full-on kind of meltdowns we didn't really know at the time I thought they were panic attacks but now Mm. looking back I'm like actually they were probably more autism meltdowns um and then so I thought sort of thought I was having panic attacks and then Mm. I was being treated for panic attacks um and then I started to get really depressed and felt very isolated and then I started to slip in school and I got really quite just really just not myself at all and I just couldn't really work or experience things in the same way as most college students I had to kind of get up and leave class halfway through I would um you know come in late I would I missed a lot of um college and then because of that my grades slipped then I just wanted to leave school I didn't see the point in it Mm -hmm. and that was really where I needed a lot of support in terms of um care and teaching and exam support and and Luckily, at that point, I had friends that really stuck by me. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the support yeah. you got was friends. Did you get any other support? Had any? Had anyone? You know, were there any interventions at this point to help you? I had a, a really amazing um, counselor slash nurse in school who um, really helped me for the first year of college. She unfortunately left um, after that, and I felt completely lost without her. And it was almost like I had to go all the way back to the beginning and start again. But um, the teachers were amazing. I got actually really close with a couple of teachers who sort of confided in me about that sort of what they had been through. And then that helped me to kind of realise, oh, gosh, I'm not the only one who struggles with this because it really did feel like everyone else in school was doing amazing and they didn't mm-hmm. have anything to deal with. And I was there like really struggling and I did feel completely alone. But uh, and then outside of school, I did have a lot of intervention in terms of I was in cams at that point, um, doing a lot of counselling, sort of you know, twice weekly counselling and trying to get as much support as possible in that respect. But then once we found out it was autism and I got diagnosed, it was almost sort of like, where do we go from here? Um, The support did really kind of stop at that point, which was a little bit unfortunate. And I think that's what a lot of people um, do experience is they get a lot of mental health support. And then once we realised that it's actually the root cause is not mental health, it's autism, Nobody really knows what to do at that point. And I was supposed to be referred to adult mental health. But then when they said, well, we can't really support you with autism in the adult mental health services, I was just sort of left, really. Um, So I didn't really, and I still don't really receive a lot of medical support. I kind of just stick by my family and get the support here outside of medical related stuff. So do you do you see that as a big gap then that there should be something 
absolutely it's a huge issue I feel um I think and I would hope that we are working towards getting an actual pathway for diagnosis. Um, I feel like a lot of um, medical professionals out there, sort of GPs, um, psychologists, the people who you would go to see and chat about potential autism related symptoms to kind of don't really know where to refer you to or mm. what to do next. And a lot of GPs or professionals, I just feel like almost say, okay, we'll try this and we'll see how it goes from there. And it is almost like lots of stabs in the dark. And I think a lot of people with autism feel like they are just being sort of going from person to person, from place to place in mm -hmm. order to get support. There's no real understanding and knowledge of this is where you go to get support for autism lots of people people either are diagnosed in cams like me or they're diagnosed by an autism specialist if you have mm -hmm. that in your area or yeah. a psychologist and no one really has the same story and although that's brilliant in one respect that we're all unique it does show a massive gap in our in our services that no one is experiencing things in the same way and it's all just kind of we're all just sort of trying our best to get a diagnosis or get support somewhere i wonder though if that is because the spectrum is so broad it must be mm. from a medical professional's point of view really difficult to identify because everyone presents yeah. so differently because one of the things i always feel when i watch your videos is and i know i shouldn't use this word but you you look so normal you're just yes. like you know so engaging so easy to chat to I, you know, it's that whole invisible thing, isn't it? Because it is, I yeah. cannot see anything about you. Yeah. Which really, looks autistic. And I think that's really why that's what spurred me on. And that's what carries on motivating me to do these things is because when I was first diagnosed, it felt so right and so valid. And I was like, yes, this is such a massive relief. This is what I've been dealing with. And then I found no one that I could relate to in the autism community. Um, it was really, really difficult for me to get involved with support groups or people who I felt like had the same experience as me. Lots of people um, have that, had very different symptoms because like you said, the spectrum was so broad. So then I thought I'm gonna try and pave the way and actually show people that this is a side of the spectrum that isn't often looked at or acknowledged. And although yes, online, I still get lots of people saying, you look fine. You're not, <laughs> don't have anything wrong with you. And I said, well, yes, you know, that's, a, that's, that's great. That's exactly I, the point as well yeah, though, isn't it? That, yeah. Exactly. It just spurs me on mm -hmm. because I feel like those comments and those, um, all those questions and the people who are sort of maybe potentially being a bit mean or a bit, um, you know, quite harsh on me, I feel like it's just coming from a place of misunderstanding. So I don't get upset or no, angry. Was... I'm just, I, it spurs me on to be like, actually, this is a side of things that we need to show yeah. a lot more of. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say is that whole, um, it needs spoken about because if it's not spoken about, then people are never going to get it. Yeah, exactly. And it's yeah. always going to be a side that's hidden and, um, and invisible. Yes. So in terms of that invisibility side, you present as you present in a very, you know, conversational, energetic, engaging way. Yeah. What is the invisible bit? What's going on inside? A lot of it is, it just is exhausting. It's really, I second guess myself a lot with what I'm saying. I almost feel like I've got two personalities to me. I've got my work side, which is like this side where I'm chatty and I, I love talking to people. And I like, you know, being a side of it, being a part of this whole community and getting my voice heard. But then an hour later, I'll crash and I will just shut down. Shutdowns are something that I experience so often. It's just I'll sit 
on the sofa and I just can't move. I can't talk. I can't even really hear anything. And I will just emotionally and physically just completely block everything out. And it's really, really difficult because it almost feels like my brain is trying to break out of my body and say, come on, let's interact with the world. You can do this. And my body just won't let it at mm-hmm. all. And, um, and then I'm just exhausted constantly. Mm-hmm. And, and the biggest side of things that I deal with um, is the sensory the sensory side of things, um, you know, not being able to wear certain types of clothes, um, certain smells being overwhelming, not being able to touch or interact with certain things, you know, so things like cleaning. I get, I'm so overwhelmed by picking up clean dishes or dishes that are just fresh out of the dishwasher or, um, you know, even brushing my teeth. I hate the sensation of toothpaste. So it's sort of, all these everyday things start to build up and build up and build up. And then I get to the end of the day after my body and my mind going through really (laughs) quite a lot. And then I'm just, I shut down at the end of it. And I just can't. And then it's sort of going to bed and then having to wake up and and start fresh and start again. Yeah. There's an old um, Japanese torture that I, I once read about, which is where they capture someone and they lay them down and they lock them in a dark room for like days and they get a dripping tap and they just let the water drip on their forehead slowly, oh. right? And you think that that's, that's not torture, that's nothing. But after four or five days of it, where they've just left with this thing dripping on it, it becomes physically sore because it's yeah. just been dropping in the same place. And I imagine yeah. that, that kind of like sensory stuff being like that, it's, it's just lots of different things that build up and build up. And yeah. them, all of them might be quite small things, but together they make a massive thing. Would that exactly. be... Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That's exactly. That's a really great way of describing it. Often it's not um, sort of one thing that is really difficult to deal with. Sometimes it's like that when you just wake up in the morning and you just cannot handle anything. Yeah. But often for me, it's sort of I can keep going throughout the day have maybe a couple of little slip-ups, but nothing major. Yeah. And then I get towards the end of the day and it all just hits me at that point then. And it is just that it's almost like that slow burn. It's yeah. not always instant. And that's another thing that I like to try and sort of chat about and advocate for. Um, I often get a lot of delayed reactions with things. Okay. So a lot of people think that with autism, you go into an environment that's overwhelming and you instantly react to it. Yeah. You instantly have a meltdown or you get anxious or you can't handle it. But often for quite a few people, you can be fine in that environment that is actually overwhelming and you can cope with it. But then you come home or come out of that environment and it just all hits you then. You can cry. I've had experiences where I've just come home and I felt numb and I've just burst into tears. And I'm like, why is this happening to me? I'm at home. I'm safe. And it's actually just the repercussions of what I've just been through, where although I've had a good time, I didn't realise how overwhelming it was for myself. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So in terms of that, so would you class yourself as like, over are your senses overstimulated or understimulated? Oh, that's difficult because I kind of go through both. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, I'm over. Okay. Um, all the stuff that I find really difficult to deal with is being oversensitive to things. Mm-hmm. I actually quite enjoy being undersensitive to things because I can put myself in environments that are quite extreme and still quite enjoy them. For example, when it, when I, sort of like. If you 
like messy play yeah. or something that a lot of people find yucky or instantly kind of, oh gosh, no, I don't like that. I yeah. can really experience it because my senses don't instantly recoil backwards in fear. Yeah. It's sort of like they take a little while to process it and I can actually enjoy that experience a lot more than other people okay. sometimes. But if I'm over sensitive, the things that I tend to recoil back from are things that often other people are fine with so it's just those difference in reactions and I find it so interesting yeah. to talk to people about sensory sides of stuff because even those on who aren't on the spectrum still have those little things that they Definitely. like or don't like and it's really interesting to see yeah which which things sort of set people off and which it's really unique and they're always really funny and random <laughs> yeah I've got I've got my random thing which I never thought was sensory seeking but it probably is is that this is really disgusting as well I like <laughs> to bite my fingernails and get get the fingernail off and then I like to shove it up between my tooth and my gum until it it's sore yeah. um, and I, I love that sensation which is totally weird and random that is strange yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but it's so funny to see that everyone has those little quirks yeah are really strange like that and then it's sort of you really once you know about sensory seeking and sensory side of things you can look at them in a different way and be like well we all have our own little sensory quirks and sensory things that make us unique even if you're not on the spectrum and it's so interesting to talk to people about that yeah so so let's talk about the different types of sensory seeking then because that's one of the things you love i do yeah <laughs> so is, is there like a list of types or? There is, yeah. Okay. There are seven different types. So we actually have eight different senses. Mm -hmm. We have the five that are external. So the, the classic sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. And um, then we have three internal. Uh, we have vestibular. Then we have proprioceptive. And then we have one that's a little bit more complicated, which is called interception, right. which doesn't really come into sensory seeking so much. But it's really interesting. It's actually your sense of your body. So it's that sense of knowing when you're hungry, when you're full, when you need the toilet, when you don't need the toilet. And some people don't have that sense, um, which is really interesting. Wow. And I had only recently learned about that. But from a sensory point of view, that's one that's really difficult to kind of train yourself to do. Because how I do you wish I had the interest. How do you say interceptive? Interception. I wish I had the interception not to notice when I'm hungry and then I'd be dead skinny. <laughs> 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 but some people don't but then how do you explain that to someone how do you explain what hunger feels like yeah because it's, it, it's really difficult mm -hmm. um but yeah so we have those those five external and then those sort of the vestibular and the proprioceptive those are the ones that come into sensory seeking so there are seven different types mm -hmm. and it's all about incorporating what we call a sensory diet which i love saying yeah. it's a lovely little term and basically what this means is um, those with autism in particular have this sort of this sort of spiral wave of having really high levels of activity mm -hmm. to the point where you're not actually getting anything done. You are being quite unproductive because you've got so much energy and so much activity. You're kind of losing concentration, losing focus. Um, so you're at the peak, but you're not actually being productive. Yeah. And then at the bottom of that graph, you've got that complete crash like the shutdowns of just not being able to do anything and also being quite unproductive and the sensory diets which we can incorporate in any person's life regardless of whether they have autism or not mm. is actually just bringing those peaks closer together and actually actually making them much more manageable so you're not ever getting to the point of being so high that you are being unproductive mm -hmm. you're having still a, a good level of energy but you're actually using it in a, in a great way 
mm-hmm. and then you're never crashing to the point where you're not being able to do anything you're only dipping to okay. a calm or relaxed level so yeah. like when you're going to sleep that sort of thing okay and it's just being able to kind of control those sort of fluctuations in activity level so it's finding activities that uh, or sensory things that either calm you to bring you down from that high level of activity or that stimulate you to bring you up to a normal level of activity and I love sort of figuring out which sensory things work work for certain people and it's figuring out what type of sensory see who you are and I always say play along at home because <laughs> it's a great way of being able to sort of go it's almost like an online quiz you can yeah. go through and sort of figure out which one you or your loved one is so yeah. do you want to go should we go through them and yeah let's do get it. everyone to play along at home yeah. and see so the first one obviously is one that we're probably all familiar with with chewy jam it's oral seeking so having a lot of craving sensory stuff in your mouth um, so symptoms of this, if you're looking to try and figure out if you are an oral seeker, would be things like if you enjoy chewing, if you enjoy licking things, um, even binge eating and stuffing your mouth full of things or the types of food that you eat. If you like spicy or crunchy foods that are quite extreme, mm. this can all be symptoms of being an oral seeker. Mm-hmm. And then actually safer ways to deal with this. Mm-hmm. Chewy Jen's. having something that is safe to chew on or trying a lot of different foods, having a night maybe throughout the week where you do like uh, a different style of food on a Friday and and try spicy foods or crunchy foods and and actually exploring with foods. So oral seeking is actually really, really common. And it's probably something that we see quite a lot of in our community on Chewy Gem because it's all about just that need to chew, essentially. Yeah. And then we have auditory, which is all about hearing, which again is very, very common with those with autism. Um, So symptoms of being an auditory seeker are just basically liking things loud. If you talk really loud and you're not aware of how loud you're talking, or if you like listen to music really loud and you have your parents or someone you live with saying, turn it down, that could be auditory seeking. And then the ways of dealing with that are just turning everything up having headphones that can you can listen to going to concerts just making everything loud and and in charge essentially but equally that's one of the ones that could cause a shutdown isn't it exactly if you're the opposite way and you don't like it and that's really important to remember with the sensory seeking this is all about create your body craving something Mm -hmm. but actually you have the complete opposite of that which is sensory avoiding which is when you really hate these things and they cause you quite extreme reactions yeah so um, people can be a seeker and an avoider of the same group. So you, like I sometimes enjoy being in really loud environments, but other times I can't handle it. So it's a, it's a really vast topic. Yeah. and really interesting because everyone's completely different. But yeah, it's important to remember that you can actually avoid these things as well and not always crave them yes because i mean I, I don't know whether this would be oral or one of the other senses but a lot of people with autism also have a limited diet because they you know they like to stick to certain things yes so i wonder Definitely. if that's oral or is that something else going on with it that? could be oral it could be even um tactile with the yeah. texture because tactile is a really lovely group um it's especially for seeking i'm a huge tactile seeker everyone who knows me knows i just i got to get my hands stuck into things yeah um so like symptoms of being a tactile seeker is going around the shops and touching everything yeah my parents hate going shopping with me because i just wander <laughs> off mm-hmm. and i've found everything to touch and to smooth and to grab hold of uh, because i can't resist 
knowing what things feel like. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a huge side of tactile seeking and also getting messy, getting stuck into things and, yeah. um, and finding all the messy things in the kitchen and just diving in. Yeah. Um, so the things that work for those sorts of things, um, fidget toys, messy play, even the chewy gems can, you know, I yeah. love fidgeting with mine. So um, yeah, tactile is a huge um, but tactile can be, like you said, with texture with the food as well. Um, I often get a limited diet because I don't like how foods feel in my mouth. Mm-hmm. So that can be tactile and sort of texture wise, but can also go into oral as well, like you were saying. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then we're moving on to olfactory, which is a long word for just smell. Yeah. So um, if you are an olfactory seeker, you will want to smell everything kind of like the tactile. You just want to go and smell everything in the shop. Um, lots of different things that you just sort of are intrigued about mm. how they smell. It also links quite strongly to oral seeking as well, because mm. a lot of people, if something smells nice, they'll put it in their mouth. Yeah. So um, it does link quite heavily to people who are oral seekers as well. Yes. Um, and there are lots of things out there nowadays for olfactory seekers, um, things like scented Play-Doh, um, scratch and sniff stickers, all the yeah. small things that you just sort of walk past in the shops can actually be really brilliant sensory aids as well. Yeah. So then we have visual as well. So mm-hmm. that's sort of the last of the... I think that's supposed to be external senses now. And um, symptoms of being a visual seeker is very highly distracted by things, sort of will see something and just wander off. Um, or someone who notices the small details in things, which is often quite quite common with those with autism. They often see, pick up on the small details that people miss. Mm-hmm. And that can be a sign of being a visual seeker. Okay. And again, lots of things out there for visual seekers. You can get sort of lava lamps and projectors and... Um, um, bubble timers and bubble wands and things yeah. like that anything or dark dens even mm-hmm. um, being sort of in pitch darkness and having things lit up um it's a really really awesome side of sensory seeking i'm a huge visual seeker as well um yeah it's really it's a fun side like fireworks yeah. and things like that yeah and then final two the most complicated yes. <laughs> we've got proprioceptive mm-hmm. which is one of the internal senses and the proprioceptive side of things is is your sense of sort of coordination really Mm -hmm. so it's understanding where your arms are in relation to yourself and other people your legs are so people who crave this side of things and need some sensory sides with sort of proprioceptive seeking they're often quite clumsy um uncoordinated bash into things quite a lot i'm i'm part of this as well (laughs) very sort of not sort of coordinated spatial awareness not brilliant and interesting and interestingly enough People with um, sort of quite a not brilliant sense of proprioception don't know how much force they need to do activities. Okay. So they'll often write really, really heavily. They'll really push down on the pen. Yeah. Or they'll um, sort of quite be quite rough with people or themselves, not knowing and not understanding how little force is needed with certain things. And sort of like the demonstration is I've sort of got a water bottle by here and I know roughly how much weight that is yeah um because i'm quite good with understanding that but there are some people on the spectrum who wouldn't know 
how much this weighs. So they might pick it up and throw it because they might think it's really heavy or they might not be able to pick it up because they think it's really light. So really, really interesting side of things. Is there any link there then to dyspraxia with that? I think there is. Yes. Yeah. I think it links quite heavily with dyspraxia. I mean, I'm not dyspraxic myself and I don't really know that much about it, but I I know lots of people who do have dyspraxia and to me it often sounds like it looks well, that's really what I'm, heavily. Yeah, I'm. I'm not. I'm. I'm not an expert on dyspraxia either. But my understanding of it is, it is general clumsiness and yes, stuff like yeah. that, and all of that stuff you're describing sort of sounds linked to me. I think it definitely links. And then anything that sort of could help with proprioceptive seeking could probably also help with dyspraxia as well. Yeah. So a lot of things like um, weighted blankets to kind of understand where everything is and to feel all aspects yeah. of your body in one area. Um, pillow fights and big bear hugs to help mm-hmm. with coordination and understanding where your body is. But the other thing that really helps is actually contact sports. So you can start to learn how much force is too much force yeah. and um, and to try and sort of learn that side of things as well. Okay. And then finally, the vestibular, which Mm -hmm. is a really, really big word. Just I sort of describe it as motion and movement. It's to do with um, like sort of joints and um, that sense of movement. And uh, this is basically if you have or if you if you have someone or if you are someone who won't stop moving, who is really, really restless, who likes to spin around um, a massive side of vestibular seeking is if they enjoy being upside down. Um, massive side of vestibular okay. um, seeking and sensory stuff is if they enjoy sort of seeing the world in different yeah. sort of views and being upside down, being on their head, spinning around, getting dizzy, um, things that a lot of us might find overwhelming. Yeah. And then things that could help with this are going to the playground, assault courses, um, pogo sticks or trampolines, anything to just get the energy out. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it's a really, really common side and quite a fun one as well. But you could just sort of get all your energy out in one in one space or running around and doing lots of sporty things very much linked to vestibular seeking. Yeah. So where, where does stimming come into it then? Well, stimming is is sometimes linked to sensory stuff, mm. but it's it tends to be more linked to sort of self regulation. Yes. So it tends to be if you are an avoider of any mm-hmm. of these and you get overwhelmed in certain situations, sometimes people stim to deal with that. Mm-hmm. Um, stimming can be a side of sort of vestibular seeking as well if they like that movement or that sort of constant tapping or repetition of something or moving around. Uh, but more often than not, it's actually linked to sort of how you actually deal with these things. Um, if for me, I stim in situations where I'm I'm bored or if I'm not getting enough sensory information. Mm-hmm. So let's say I'm in a supermarket and I can't touch anything. Mm-hmm. I've been told, don't touch anything. You're not allowed to touch anything. I find that really difficult to deal with because my brain wants needs to. that yeah. and wants it. So I'll start stimming to kind of help my brain deal with that and to kind of just get some energy out get that sort of excess brain waves out of my body in some respects so it tends to be linked to sensory stuff quite a lot but it's more about how you how you deal with them yeah Um, how how can you how, how can you spot i'm just i'm just thinking of my own kids now when they do their homework or I'm trying to get them to concentrate on something and they're wriggling about or they're tapping their pen or they're you know spinning in the chair and all that sort of stuff is is I mean they're they're not on the spectrum but I'm just thinking so many people behave like that I look at it and think 
I look at it and think, how can you possibly concentrate? So I will say things to them like, will you stop that so that you can concentrate? But I know in the autism world, quite often chewing and, and you know, fiddling helps concentration. It does, I, yeah. I cannot get my head into how... Because I couldn't do it. I couldn't do one other thing <laughs> while trying to concentrate on something else. It's so, really common. Yeah. So yeah. I, wonder, I used to do that a lot in school. I still ooh. do it now. It was something that I used to get told off a lot for in um, in high school. I used to bang my pen on the table or click it a lot and yeah. fidget an awful lot. And then lots of people, like my teachers, would tell me off and I would get really self-conscious of it. But yeah. it's just my way of concentrating and dealing with things. Um, but we like do, you said, what's interesting is we do seem to just think that in order to concentrate or do an activity properly, you have to be still and focused Um, and you know I certainly experienced what you experienced at school being told to stop doing something or I do it to my own children for goodness sake it's like it's (laughs) been programmed in us that that's how we should concentrate and it it clearly isn't is it yeah everyone learns differently and does Mm -hmm. and carries out things in a different way and I think the more that um sort of people realize this we can start to change the way that people think you have to concentrate and have to work in this way everyone works in different ways and like you said it's not even just those on the spectrum it's just changing our view we've almost been sort of programmed to think to do a task properly you have to be sitting in silence um with no distractions and in a blank bare room um but actually a lot of people benefit from having background noise or fidgeting or having actual distractions there to kind of keep their mind active and uh, yeah everyone has different little things that they do to concentrate it must be incredibly challenging when I think about it for teachers because you've probably got such a mix of kids in your class, some that need to do that and to fiddle with something to concentrate and others that the noise of a clicking pen will mean that they can't concentrate. Definitely. it's. I, find, I think it would be so difficult for teachers to manage and I think that's why it's often um, the people who do need those distractions are often told to stop, stop because it sort of creates that neutral environment that everyone can kind of, or most people will find appealing. Yeah. But then there are one or two that just can't focus in those. And then that's when often people sort of struggle in school so much because the environment isn't suited to them. And then it's, it's actually quite really sad, really, because then it's mm. sort of like if you just change one small thing about the learning environment or the way that you carry out a task you can actually do it in a lot more of a successful way and it's they're quite easy things to change really yeah so if you were a teacher how would you handle that oh gosh Mm, I just wonder is there a solution I don't know what you do yeah what because what we don't want to do and I often find that it's it's really difficult and teachers often might resort to this is actually separating yes and I often find that we need that mix of those who aren't on the spectrum and those who are on the spectrum. I think it's quite beneficial for people to learn how others learn and to be in an environment where we're all mixed so that we can learn about each other and kind of sort of appreciate and respect each other as opposed to always being separate and segregated. And, and then that understanding disappears really. Yeah. So I think naturally a lot of people do resort to let's put you in one room and everybody else in another room. And I don't, I personally don't think that's the best way of dealing with it. I do think there are other ways around certain things. Um, I often used to, in 
in high school and college, I was sort of wear my headphones because I had to have some kind of background noise or music yeah. in the background to concentrate. And at that point, it wasn't bothering anybody else because it was just what I could hear. Yes. Um, so it's finding individual ways that don't kind of contribute to the whole class and can make everything yeah. really difficult. But even with sort of the sensory diet, like I was talking about, you don't sometimes always have to have lots of things going on all the time. You can just sort mm -hmm. of maybe have... 10 minutes of solid work and then two minutes of getting your energy out or doing clicking your pen doing yeah. something to sort of distract yourself and then think right okay I've had that time let's go back to work now yeah um when I was in primary school my teacher she was really awesome at this um every morning we would go out the whole class would mm -hmm. go out and we would um jump rope in okay. the morning we would have regular breaks throughout the day where we would just go out just our class yeah. this is something that she just did we would all have our own individual skipping ropes in our sort of pegs in school and we would go out and just skip for about five minutes and oh, then we'd come back good. in and then we were all ready to learn then. Yeah. And, um, That's good. Yeah, it's, well, we think about with primary school, we all had like breaks throughout the day, like lunch break and... Yeah. And, morning break and afternoon break and it's really just a scent that's the sensory diet yeah. just allowing people to get out and and stretch their legs and move around and get all their energy out or, or relax if they need to yeah um find what works for them and then come back into an environment and think yeah like quite level-headed and be okay i'm ready to learn now yeah that makes total sense mm. Great. That's been dead interesting with all the different <laughs> types of seeking and the, the diet. I love that. We'll have to so, ask everyone to uh, let us know what kind of types of sensory seekers they are now. Definitely. Out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think from listening to you, I'm definitely oral with my nail gum shoving. I think um, so. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You need a chewy gem, Jenny. Come yes, on. Yes, <laughs> I do. I do. Um, I certainly have access to enough of them, so that's all right. <laughs> Um, so for you, the future, Invisible Eye, what are your dreams, goals, ambitions? What's 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 next? Wow. I've got a lot going on at the moment. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm very, very busy at the moment. I'm uh, sort of still plodding along with videos on my channel. I'm uh, working with lots of different organisations and brands at the moment. Um, lots of sort of sensory stuff or um, autism services. Uh, at the moment, I'm working really hard with um, the Autism Directory here in Wales to mm -hmm. start up uh, some workshops and some community projects where we can actually go and visit more rural areas of Wales that don't often access the same facilities as the big cities. Right. And uh, we can go and, and sort of give some expertise and some, vi some advice and yeah. access to sensory support as well uh, to people who don't often get that support. So doing lots of stuff at the moment, online and offline. And right. uh, yeah, long may it continue. <laughs> Brilliant. Good. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. We, we absolutely love you here at Chewy Gem, but you know that. And if <laughs> anyone you. has not seen Katie before, then the best place to follow you is YouTube, isn't it? It is. Yeah. Um, to so just on search for Invisible Eye um, yeah. and you will find us. So fab. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jenny. Okay. Bye bye. So that was Katie. What did you think? Okay. She's amazing, isn't she? Uh, I can't believe it's a year, really, since we got put in touch with Katie. I know. And so much has happened that year. Totally. And she's she's now part of the team, which is just wonderful and a yeah. complete asset to the team. So we hope yeah, you absolutely. all enjoyed that. Uh, now, next week, we've got another Katie. Um, but this time it's Katie Kate. from... Kate, sorry. Kate from Kate. Girls Autistic Journey. Um, and you, you know her quite well, don't you, Lorraine? 
Yeah, I've been friends with Kate for a while. Uh, we're both going through similar journeys and, and we've both got similar stories with both of our daughters. So, yeah, great. Kate's loved Yeah, absolutely. So that's a, an interesting one um, for next week to look forward to. So all that remains to be said for me really is keep an eye on the page this week. Everything will be revealed. And if you're not yet a VIC, then this is going to make you want to be one. Yeah, definitely. I'm mm-hmm. so excited. It's hard to contain myself. I actually feel like jumping around. I know. I know. It really is very exciting. So, yeah, exciting week. Enjoy it, everybody. And next week we'll talk freely about it and we'll maybe do a couple of lives with people and see what they all think of things. And, yeah, we'll see how it goes. So yeah. have a good week, everyone. Bye. Bye. You know what?